All right, we're continuing this morning in Luke 17, so if you're there already, good. We're going to uh, take a small chunk this morning of verses 20 and 21, so just two verses this morning. And if you go ahead and kind of glance at them, because there's only two verses there, you'll, you'll quickly see that we're back to the reoccurring theme that has been flowing throughout Luke's gospel, and that is uh, the kingdom of God. And, and this isn't a new theme for us. It's not a new reality that's just all of a sudden coming on for us, so we don't have to really unpack too much. Uh, we will do some, um, because in the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God, the idea of the kingdom, is there 46 times, and we've already done it 30. So we've already seen it over 30 times. So, so this morning, we're going to engage the, the kingdom of God. So let's, let's look at verse 20, and let's read this together. Verse 20 Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so this is the ending of our reading for this morning, the word of the Lord And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see it and to hear it as a holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. If if you've been a Christian for a while, and I think most of us in this room have, and and you've you've had a, a sense of your life where you've been trying to live out Christian teachings and Christian obedience and the things that Christ would have for us, you, you, you quickly realize that this is a long process. There may be times of sprinting, if you remember what sprinting felt like, but it, it's more like a marathon, as everyone says. It's a, it's a long process. We, we know that we've been transformed by the power of Christ, and, and by faith we have received Christ, and by grace we've been saved. But sometimes it just seems like we never will arrive, does it? And we know that to be true, right? That we that will never arrive, and, and almost like there's never a peace. There's always this restlessness. This restlessness from that process. Because what it seems like is when we figure out one thing, something else tends to always come up. So, so let's say, for, uh, let's just take for example, maybe you've, you know, you've figured out what the Bible teaches, not just what the Bible teaches, but then kind of applied obedience and application of the Word of God to your heart uh, on tithing. Say you've, you've, you've gotten that. You believe the word of God and what it says and how our money and everything we own is not ours, but we are just stewards of it. And it's, it is God's and it's for God. And so when we give and we tithe to the church, that we are, we are being a blessing. Like, so we, like you, you get that. Yes, that's great. And you're, you're happy about that. You're, you're excited about, about giving unto the Lord because you see the faithfulness in that. You see the obedience in that. And then you hear a sermon like last week about thankfulness and you're just like, all I do is ask, Lord, and I hardly ever give thanks. I hardly, I hardly ever give thanks. And then, and then there's, this, there's this almost discouragement that takes place because you, just when you thought you had 
one thing down, like you're good to go. Here comes another thing the Holy Spirit shows through the, through the word of God. That can get discouraging. There's something else. What if, well, that's frustrating, isn't it? To, to me, that's been frustrating in my life. I actually could point to times where I'm just like, really, God? Another thing? Let me just kind of rest here for a moment. And it can kind of become frustrating. And, and yes, we know what it means in a sense as Christians that we're always growing in grace. We're always maturing in faithfulness and holiness together. But it is a long race. Maybe you're not frustrated about growing and maturing in the gospel. Or maybe that's part of it. But also maybe you've, just, you've found discouragement of just living in a fallen world. The, the pain of living in a fallen world, constantly seeing tragedies and crimes and injustices and disasters that take place like the tornadoes up in Ohio this week and, and the shooting in, in Virginia Beach and, and so much more. We continue to hear these things and, and maybe when we read about the persecution of the church and, 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 and we don't feel this because we don't hear about it much, but right now the persecution of the church worldwide is at its highest since the beginning, since the, the, the beginning. And we rarely hear that from the media. And we certainly weep with those who are weeping. But on the other hand, it's so frustrating. We don't hear of these things. And it's so frustrating that it continues to happen. And, and maybe also the things that are frustrating and discouraging to us is in our own country, Christianity has been so marginalized, and I know I've said this before, that, that we no longer have a legitimate voice worthy to be, whole, to, to be heard. Because uh, no longer, because of what we believe is considered by so many now that it's just hate speech. That it's hate speech, and it threatens, and it offends, and it makes people feel unsafe. And so you're marginalized to the fringes and the reason why I bring all these up, because in, in some sense, I want us to feel that angst. I want us to feel that, that discouragement a little bit and that frustration that you kind of felt maybe this past week and, and, and the thorns and thistles of life that just kind of always come up and that we're always dealing with. Because the question that the Pharisees asked this morning to Jesus are kind of birthed in the same reality of what we feel in angst every day when we face the sin in our own heart and the angst and the disasters of the world. We know of all people that things are not right. And even though we have received so much from Christ and we refuse, we know his promises and that they will still be fulfilled. There still is a frustration. A frustration and a longing for all things to be restored. That's why as a church, our prayer should be Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because we feel already the tension. The tension of the already but not yet. We want Jesus to come. We want him to make all things new. We want these things to be restored. We want his kingdom to come. So the question then that the Pharisees posed to Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? 
This is not a question of entrapment. I mean, we know we've, we've seen where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, but I think they are honestly trying to ask the question, when's the kingdom coming? When, what's your perspective, Jesus? What's your, what's your view, your eschatological views, Jesus, on these things? So unpacking this first question, we need to answer the first question on the screen, in which I was reminded this morning that it was it's an unsettled issue, but it should be settled for us this morning, and that is, what is the kingdom of God? So let's answer that question. We've actually defined it previously, and if you have not written this down yet, do it now because it's the answer to question number one. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Right? So there's the three things. Right? It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. I'm going to give you a second part. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. And therefore, it is wherever God is truly recognized and honored as king. Therefore, it is wherever God is truly recognized and honored as king. So if he is king, then it's in God's place. If he's king, then it's under God's rule and under and is God's people that are there. So we can say, hopefully, confidently, this morning, that as we are gathering this morning as God's people in this place under God's authority in his word of God, that we are at peace of the kingdom of God. Because as a church, we seek to honor him as king. We are his newly created people in Christ, in his place, under his authority. Now, was that then what the, the Pharisees were asking to come? Yes and no. Yes and no. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. We're going to have to do some work to get the answer to that, to understand the answer to that question. Now, the kingdom of God, although we hear about it a lot in the New Testament, right? Uh, we, we've kind of said this before a little bit, but, but the, the kingdom of God isn't just a New Testament idea. It's, it's not something that, that, that Jesus kind of started talking about when, when he came on the scene. The kingdom of God was, is actually extends way back to the beginning. It extends all the way back into the Old Testament. So that's why there is such a continuity between the Old and New Testament. Because the Old Testament is always pointing forward to the fulfillment of the, uh, the, the New Testament, pointing outside of itself to, to its fulfillment of the Old Testament, like the coming of the kingdom of God. So let's go back to, let's look back to Genesis, right? So in Genesis, the triune God, he created from nothing this whole universe. And, and it was an overflow of his character. It's an expression of his character, of who he is, in its perfection, but also in its peace. There was a, a shalom in the universe, a peace in the universe, a, a certain rhythm and harmony that existed that we can hardly even fathom and understand. And, and then God created man and woman. And, and what's neat is God put them in the garden and then God was near to them. God was close to them. God's presence was with Adam and Eve. He walked with them. 
He walked with them. And, and they walked also in this purpose, man and woman, in that peace, in that shalom between, between man and God and between man and woman. They walked in the purposes of God by which they were created and what God has called them to do. And so for that brief moment in time, everything that they did, from work to play to eating, drinking, and their relationship as man and woman was all rolled up perfectly to the glory of God. Everything in life was created for worship to God. And, and there in the, in the garden, we have this first picture of the kingdom of God, of God's people, Adam and Eve, and God's place in his garden under God's authority and then centered the sin excuse me entered the world and that fractured the peace it fractured the shalom between between God and man and even fractured the relationship between man and woman hello married couples Right? It fractured even that. And so what ends up happening now is instead uh, what we do now is when we create, when we create things and do things, we like for those things to terminate on us and no longer those things create worship unto God. We fail to honor God as God like we saw last week. Which means, when, which means then creating... When we create and we only have that glory terminate on us, which means then for us we have a meaningless existence. It means life becomes shallow and, and hollow. And, and that idea is just toiling and rotting in the hearts of men, isn't it? It creates meaningless in our life. So, so even though we still can enjoy the good things in life, we can still enjoy amazing barbecue, we can still enjoy good relationships, we can enjoy what money can produce and success and materialism and everything, but, but none of that now is, 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 is what we use in our own hearts. We use it for ourselves and not for God's glory. And when we do that, then we show our we show meaninglessness, that there's a meaningless there because everything is broken, everything is fractured. Now, yet even though God showed us his hand right there in Genesis 3, he showed us his, his hand, what he was going to do. And the rest of the Bible then tells us of this restoration to come. It shows us over and over by shadows to eventual reality in the New Testament what a restored people in a restored place under God's perfect rule looks like, doesn't it? So let's, let's continue to walk, walk on, right? So the, the next big reality or next big moment in the Old Testament was the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant through Abraham, duh, uh, he's, God says, through you, Abraham, through your line, through your family, uh, I'm going to create a people. Bing, 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 God's people, right? He's gonna, I'm going to create a people through you, Abraham, and through you they are going to be a blessing to to all the world, to all the, the, the nations. Now, now think of that. There, there's a promise to, to a really old guy who has an older wife and who is also barren and they have no kids. So that's the promise that God makes to them. And, and if you remember, at this part of Genesis, there's a little bit of frustration there, isn't there? 
There's a little bit of frustration on, on Abraham's part and a lot of frustration on Sarah's part that makes them want to manipulate the, the will of God. And, of course, it doesn't accomplish anything. But more frustration and more impatience and more sin. But the promise would eventually come through Abraham and then through Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. So here's God making a people and eventually going to take them to a place. We call that the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So several generations pass now after after Joseph, they find themselves in, Israel, in Egypt, and you guys, y'all know the story, but as they're in Egypt, they become enslaved to the Egyptians. And for over 400 years, they were enslaved to the Egyptians. So once again, more fear, more frustration, more impatience, more pain, more suffering, waiting for a deliverer, waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God, the kingdom promises of God. And that's when we get Moses. That's when we get Moses, right? Here's this, this Hebrew who was raised like an Egyptian prince but runs away from Egypt because he, he kills an Egyptian who was beating another Hebrew. But God calls him. He calls him to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh and tells them to, to go, to let my people go. But what does God do? God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And there's sovereign purposes there. He hardens the heart of Pharaoh so that the plagues would happen. And the ten plagues show the whole world the supremacy of God over not only nature, but also their gods and man. But when they get to the tenth plague, the firstborn son of every family would die. And the Jews, they were promised... That if, if you would kill a spotless lamb and then wipe its blood on the doorframe of your house, then the death angel would pass over them. And after this, all the first sons die. Pharaoh relents and he lets Israel go free. And Israel leaves happy and joyful to the land, to the place where God has promised them. But what happens? Well, what happens is what always seems to happen, and that is disobedience. They, they do what? They rebel against God's rule. They want God's stuff, but they don't want God's rule. And so right at the foot of Mount Sinai, the people cast off God's rule for a golden calf that they fashioned themselves. And that didn't end up so good for them, did it? And then the, the disobedience to, to trust God and to go take the land. Go get it. All you got to go is go in there and get it, and I'll get it for you. Oh, we're too scared. We can't do it. And so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So, so, so think about Moses. Here's Moses waiting for this to happen, frustrated by the people. The biggest and most powerful ministries that this world has ever seen happened through Moses. And Moses gets to spend the golden years of his life waiting for all the grumblers to die. And then even then, right, even then, he doesn't get to go to the promised land. Yet. <laughs> Yet. And, and then we get to Joshua. We get to Joshua, right? And he, he gets to lead that next generation into the promised land. Again, 
Here's the kingdom of God imagery. But even when you read Joshua, and you read Joshua, our judges, they're in the promised promise land, but there's still this problem that's just ongoing. And, and when you get to judges, it is just like an onslaught. It doesn't stop generation after generation of sin and sin and more sin. And there's the problem. Even in the promised land, there is sin. And so when Israel establishes itself as a nation, they, they then do what? After judges, they ask God, hey, we want a king. Give us, give us a king. Give us a, a man to rule over us like all the nations. So again, so here's, here's the contrast again, right? The kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. Man is asking for man to be over them, trying to cast off God's rule. And God even tells them, he says, listen, it's not going to go well for you. Now, I, I am your king, and I am building the kingdom of God here. But still, they wanted a king, and God gives them a king, and they gave them Saul. And that does not go well. At first it does, but it does not go well in the end. So even in the, in the kings, you have this imperfect picture of the kingdom of God. With a human king who can never seem to get it right. None of them. Uh, not even David himself, which we would call the, the pinnacle of, of all the kings of, of Israel, was still imperfect and failing. And after Solomon, the kingdom is broken up. And eventually, the, the Assyrians take one kingdom into exile, and then the Babylonians take the southern kingdom into exile. And even in this steep decline, let's just show more about the kingdom of God. Even in this steep decline of the nation of Israel, as they are exiles, God raises up prophets. God raises up these prophets to do what? To proclaim judgment that, that it's coming, but also to do what? To point them to a greater and glorious day of a kingdom that will come. That's greater than the promised land that they're in, that they were in, greater than any king that they ever had, and a bigger and greater people than they ever seen. So from the garden all the way up to this point, Israel, they get these promises and they get these shadows of this, this coming kingdom where God's rule and power over his people will be present and it will overcome sin and there will be this restoration of the people. We, we read that this morning in Malachi chapter 4. You saw there's a, there's a restoration. Even in the, the last chapter of the Old Testament, God is telling of the kingdom that would come. That points forward 400 years later when the kingdom would come and would be fulfilled. So when the Pharisees asked the question, when would the kingdom come? That's underneath, right? That's, that's from what they've known from the Old Testament. Right? So this doesn't just come out of nowhere. It doesn't just come out of what Jesus says. But this is an Old Testament idea that they were expecting. They realized they lived in a fractured world from sin. And that they need to be brought out of slavery internally and externally. And they were asking about a king. A king that would come and, and would give them freedom and to guide them like the presence of God in the Old Testament did. So, so their question, yes, was, was right. But let me show, where, show you where in their understanding where it was not. So even though it was an honest question, 
A good question to ask, their expectation of how that would be fulfilled is what was wrong. They believed that their deliverance, as we know this, would come through a military leader and revolution. Now, they didn't just make that up, by the way. That's just not something that they came up with because that's the only way that the Romans would get kicked out or would be, would be, would be kicked out, right? They, they knew the Old Testament language of God the warrior. God the king would crush the enemies. They knew the word pictures that were there and the kind of deliverance, but also they had recent history. They had a recent history that kind of showed them that too. So let me explain that to you, how they got this view. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we call that the intertestamental period, right? And there was a 400-year gap between what we would know chronologically or time-wise from, uh, from Malachi 4, the ending of the, of the Old Testament, to Matthew chapter 1, right? So there's like, pretend there's like a 400-year gap in, in between. And in that 400-year time, uh, Israel was weak. They were, they were weak. When they came back from exile, they never were the same. They were weak. And so they became conquered over and over again. And before uh, the Romans came in, there was another empire that conquered them, the uh, Seleucid Empire. And the, the Seleucid Empire was one of the four parts of the Greek Empire under uh, uh, Alexander the Great. When he died, they split it up in four pieces, and the Seleucid Empire was one of them. And they went in and conquered the, the Middle East, including our Judea, including, um, including uh, uh, Israel. Now, there we, there's where we are. So in that period before the Romans came, so around 167 B.C., so put this in, put it in mind, Jesus was born around one, what? What, around three, four B.C., so, or A.D. or something like that? And, and then the uh, resurrection was somewhere around, uh, uh, you know, 30, 33, something like that. Uh, 167 B.C., there was a man named uh, Judas Maccabeus. And we've kind of talked a little bit about him on Wednesday nights. And, and this guy had a cool nickname. And I think this is like an Israel thing. But he was called the Hammer. That's what they nicknamed. They nicknamed him the Hammer. And, and the reason why they called him, because he was an awesome leader. And he led this tiny nation to rebel against the Seleucid Empire. And they won their independence against this this little, this huge empire. So here's this small sliver of land that gained their independence. Now this was a huge deal because they were small. And, and this, this great leader who seemed to come out of nowhere won this independence for, for them. And in their minds, this is kind of the only thing that God can do. Only God can do this. This is God doing something. His kingdom is coming. Well, about 25 years later, here come the Romans. And the Romans conquer them. And they become the new oppressors. And so the Pharisees, they, they lived under that fresh history to them. That maybe there's a type of Judas Maccabeus hammer the two to come. The sequel that will be better. And that would come in and destroy the Romans just like, just like he did before. But this time forever. So this is why they had that military leader expectation that, of course, Jesus was telling them is wrong. You know, the human soul, the human soul is longing for something just like that, isn't it? Regardless of your background or not, we're, none of us are Jews. Regardless of our background, we've, we are made in our souls. 
with this kind of longing on some level to be on a savior search. And that's part of that angst in life. We're ever settled in things. is because we're on this savior search. And, and so we, in a sense, we create those golden calves of our own lives to be that savior. Money, prosperity, fame, power, education, social justice, government, politics, etc. But in some way, the question the Pharisees are asking is the same question that everyone is dealing with. When am I going to get there? When is it coming? When will there be peace in this world? When will there be peace in my mind and peace in my, in my heart? When will things get better? When will I find purpose and, and meaning in this life? When will all this mess around me just make some sense? All of these are the same kind of questions that the Pharisees are asking. When is it coming? Let's switch back to verse 20. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. So here's Jesus now, in, in a sense, exposing more of the false signs that they believe, the wrong view that, that they have, right? And so the Pharisees were looking for signs that were outward, right? They were looking for a guy to kind of be rose up in the desert who comes in and kills a Rome, uh, beats a Roman outpost, kind of like Braveheart, right? They're raised up and popular, and all of a sudden he is the leader, and there's this political upheaval, and there's military victories, and moon turning to blood, stars falling to the earth. They were looking for those kind of signs to take place. But Jesus says, no, you're, you're looking at the wrong things in the wrong way. And, and just like, like, like they were in a savior search, looking, for the, looking in the wrong signs in the wrong place, so does humanity in the wrong places in the wrong ways. But Jesus then tells us the right way to look for. This is what we look for. Look at verse 21. He says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, that means there's no signs. It's here. And there's, there's certainly signs that it is here, but it's, it's here. Now, if you have an older NIV translation or if you're still rolling with King James, it says uh, that it will be within you, and that's wrong, right? Jimmy got it wrong there. That's wrong, right? But the kingdom is in our midst. It's in our midst because Jesus is saying here, he's saying the sign that you're looking for is right here in front of you. It's, it's me. It's, it's me and what I've done, right? I'm right here in the flesh. The king is here, and I've been showing you over and over and over again my, my kingship and my authority. I mean, I mean, we just read it, but, but, but look back. Look at that healed leper. There's a sign right there that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come in Christ, and through him is what... What was broken back in Genesis 3, the fracture of the shalom, is now being restored in him. That's what he's saying. So, so boys, looking back to Genesis where everything started as, as broken and wrong, I'm restoring all of that. All of those things, the Abraham and Moses and all that stuff we just talked about, they were all shadows compared to the substance of the kingdom that's right here. So don't look for signs, look for me. It's wherever he is. 
The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to be a blessing to all nations is right there. The freedom to set the freedom to, freedom from slavery to sin. The greater enemy that is internal is here. Your king is here. Your guide is here. The presence of God is here. And through him, we will one day be led to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. That not where there is no stain of sin or rebellion. No more signs. No more shadows. Only substance. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is in our midst. Even in our small group this morning, the kingdom of God is in our midst. The kingdom and the king is Jesus. And he wasn't the king that they expected, though. He would be a king that would suffer. He would suffer on behalf of his people. He would die on the cross. And his followers that would come after him would still experience centuries of persecution and pain and suffering themselves. You see, the real enemy at that time was not the Romans. The enemy was sin. And that's the enemy that Christ conquered as king. The Pharisees were expecting a kingdom that would display earthly power through government and politics. And what Jesus is saying here is, is that my kingdom is not dependent on any of those things. You know, sometime in our longing and in our angst in this world, we can try to find some help. We try to find help for the kingdom. We try to find our own means for the, for the kingdom of God to, to go through. But one thing is, is true is that throughout the centuries and throughout Christian history, the kingdom of God is never dependent upon man. And it's definitely never dependent upon a state. And I mean there, the government. In the first three centuries of Christianity, shameless plug, come to the Wednesday nights and learn Christian history. Learn your history. The first three centuries of Christian history, Christianity was an outlier. They were, they were heavily persecuted by the state. By the state. And did that stop the expansion of the kingdom of God? And the flourishing of the church? Not at all. After then, when Christianity then became embraced by the Roman Empire, and then they said, oh, here's a good idea, let's make it the, the state religion. Did it need the state to grow and flourish? No. And in fact, then the, the church became more nominal and weak, but yet it still grew. You see, Jesus is telling us, and history is proving to us, is that the kingdom of God does not need the state or any kind of geopolitical form to it. It's not hindered by it. It doesn't matter if, if God often brings his kingdom and Christians and the gospel to countries where they will be persecuted or tolerated. We have two millennia of Christian history of every imaginable circumstances take place to Christians, whether it was favorable or unfavorable for them. The kingdom of God still went forth. So let's think about that for a second. When Jesus died on the cross... And after his resurrection, there was like a group like this size that was left. 
That was it. That was, that's all there was. There's a handful of followers that would embrace Jesus as king. 2,000 years later, how many people proclaim Jesus as Lord? What? How has that happened? Is it because the American government and all other governments around the world said, Christianity, Christianity, everyone be Christianity, and let's pour the whole budget into sharing the gospel? No. Some are more favorable than others. But Christianity continues to exist, and the kingdom of God is going forth, not because it's tied to a political group or culture or government, but rather it's through the preaching and the proclamation of the word of God and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, because the kingdom is in our midst. In Africa, where there are all sorts of issues and problems, things that we have never even come close to fathoming, But did you know that in 1900, there were only about 8 million Christians in that whole continent? But now there's over 400 million. It's exploding in Africa. It's also been growing in China in the 1930s and 40s. During the communist revolution, it was feared that that all the churches and Christians would be destroyed and all the gospel work that had been done thus far, which is much by by missionaries that came from the West, would all be gone and would all be lost. And for over 50 years, no one outside of China ever heard of what was going on. They went dark. They went dark and there was no word of what happened to Christians and we all feared that they were gone. But back 10, 20 years ago, when things politically eased up and technology kind of let things ease up or show some things, help us see some things, what we begin to realize is that the kingdom of God actually flourished where we thought it was being destroyed and squashed because communism is so evil. And it is. But the kingdom of God flourished. Who would have thought? And it spread in ways that no one expected except Jesus. Think about that. And we don't even have accurate numbers because they're still hidden. They're still underground. But even where communism reigns, the kingdom of God has still gone forth. No matter how much they try to squash it, the kingdom of God goes forth. So Jesus' answer in telling the kingdom of God exists wherever God is and truly recognizing and honor him as king, it, it doesn't require a Roman to be off the throne. It doesn't matter who, who is president or any other political situation because God's kingdom is not tied to Republican or Democrat or to some Supreme Court's unconstitutional rulings because that's all they know how to do these days. Did you catch that? That was my little sly political remark of the day. The kingdom of God is not our government. And that doesn't mean that we don't care. And that doesn't mean that we still don't vote. Absolutely, we vote, we go, we speak out, we pray, and we work for those things that are our. But all our longing, our suffering, and angst now in this life is not going to be solved from Washington. If you have not figured that one out yet, we got some work to do. I think y'all have. It's not going to be solved there. It's only going to be fulfilled in the real lasting peace from the kingdom of God, from Christ. Now, which, by the way, again, I'm all throwing a little more politics here, which, by the way, the, the brilliance of our framers of our Constitution, they put in the, 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 um, in the Bill of Rights the freedom 
uh, of, for religion, right? They recognized the human right of religion. They, that's why they didn't establish a state religion. And you can thank Baptists for that. It's the reason why. Because the kingdom of God is not the government. The Baptists recognized that. They said, we don't, we don't need you, Washington. We're grateful for our freedom, but we don't need you. The only peace and fulfillment that we'll ever have only comes through Christ. And it's because his kingdom is in our midst and because he is the fulfillment. He is the coming of God. And now it's going forth through us, the church. So let me give you a couple implications and we'll be done. A couple implications of today. Number one, if the kingdom of God is coming, meaning it's here, it's in our midst, then this is what it means. It means that my soul has been purchased because the kingdom is here. I've been reconciled. I have been made right. I have been adopted as a son. So, so remember, what was fractured from Genesis has now been made right and restored because of Jesus' faithfulness. So in the kingdom, brothers and sisters, we're free from sin. We're free from idolatry and materialism. We're free from the comparing ourselves with others. And we're free to live unto Christ, unto Jesus, because we are citizens of an everlasting kingdom that can never be taken away. Number two, if the kingdom of God is coming, then it's important for us to be living lives that reflect the rule of our king. So if the kingdom of God is coming, it's here and it's coming, then, then it's important for us to be living lives that reflect the rule of the king. So are we more concerned with living holy lives that reflect Christ as king than we are concerned that our culture as a whole is rejecting everything that is good which seems to be the reason why we have been such a blessed nation. So think about that. Are we more concerned with ourselves living a holy life unto Christ? Are we more concerned with that, or are we more concerned with how our nation is rejecting all the things that seemingly was the, blessed, the, the reasons why our nation has been blessed? And yes, we should care in some sense and, and, and deeply lament the things that we here and the things that we've seen which have just been tragic but shouldn't we be more concerned with our own hearts and how we should still try to cast off God's rule off our own hearts so in all of our failures and all of our frustrations and suffering and angst and the kingdom is here kingdom is coming we keep leaning in, we keep going, and we don't stop. Number three, if the kingdom of God is coming, then, then we need to understand that the kingdom of God is about God making for himself a people of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. If the kingdom of God is here and coming, then we need to understand that the kingdom of God is about God making for himself a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. God has always been making himself a people. 
It started there in the garden. He always was making himself a people. And he's always drawing the elect to himself. Because the kingdom of God is made up of people. Mostly in the Old Testament, we saw that it was made up of Israel. But now the church, we are to be multi-ethnic. Men and women of, of all nations gathered into one family with one king as one people. The church. Ephesians calls it the the one household of faith. But it's in the local church gatherings that that this has the specific job of displaying this reality of the the kingdom is to take place. And and I know our, our new friends are not here with us this morning, brothers and sisters, but we have to, in some sense, in many ways, express the blessing of being able to gather with a group that is literally on the opposite end of the world for us. And yet there is a unity that is unlike 20 feet outside of this room. What a blessing it has been for us to have that. Number four, if the kingdom of God is coming, then we must be reminded that we are not building but God is, that God is building. Yes, we are in the kingdom. If you are in Christ, you are in the kingdom, but you are not the main movers here. God is. And and we get the blessing of participating in it and building in it, but it's through God's sovereign grace that he is building. With us or despite us, he is still building his kingdom. Lastly, number five, if the kingdom of God is coming, then let's pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Each and every time we get together, We celebrate together the kingdom of God. But yet we also look forward to its culmination. And despite our situation culturally, politically, economically, or even personally, things you may be going through, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is found in Christ, who in himself has brought the kingdom of God. And one day, we're going to see it next week, one day, It will be ushered in by our Savior when he returns. But until then, brothers and sisters, let us live faithfully in the kingdom. Let's trust in him. Let's keep leaning in on those promises and joyfully proclaim this gospel. The gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, and that the Savior is in their midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again for the word. Lord, we pray to see even more clearly the work of the kingdom in our midst. We pray now for the response time that, Lord, we would not only be an encouragement to one another in how we respond and the words that we say, but let your spirit encourage us. And maybe we're feeling the frustration and the tension of the already, but not yet, but 
Let us feel the encouragement that the kingdom of God is here and it is coming. And so we pray for for more of, of that this morning. Lead us in Christ's name. Amen.